this past week, I don't know how many of you are Amazon Prime members, but if you are, then you probably know that this past week, Amazon had their Prime Days where you could buy a lot of uh, products for some pretty good, pretty good uh, prices. And especially if you like, like me and a lot of our uh, members of our family, especially if you like technology, we like to to buy some, you know, the latest gadgets and labor-saving devices and, and whatnot. I think technology is great when it works. And uh, when it doesn't work, well, it's not so great. And, and I say that because I read a story, I heard a story on, on the news this week, two days ago, Friday, in fact. And it was a story uh, about some drivers that were trying to get to the Denver International Airport on time to, to catch their plane. But several of them got held up because there was a traffic accident. There was a traffic jam on the, on the highway. And so they knew they were going to miss. They were afraid they were going to miss their flight. So they uh, decided to turn to Google Maps for an alternate route to get to the airport. Now, how many of you have ever used Google Maps for an alternate route? A lot of times it'll even tell you there's an accident up ahead. Take this exit. I've done that. And uh, most of the time it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. So that's what these drivers did. They thought, we need to get to the airport. I don't want to miss my flight. So they turned to Google Maps and it gave them an alternate route to the airport. And as, as a part of this alternate route, they soon found themselves on a dirt road. Now, the problem with, with that is that if you've been watching the news, you know there's been a lot of rain. Uh, even this morning, I saw a, a news story. There was a lot of rain, and there has been a lot of rain in, in Denver. So all this rain had turned this dirt road into mud. So uh, then the heavy traffic, people trying to, to get to the airport via this route, transformed this road into just sludge. And, it was, and then it was basically a parking lot because the cars couldn't move. A lot of them got stuck. And so it was a big mess. Uh, uh, one of the local TV stations uh, interviewed a lady by the name of Connie Monsees. And she said, this lady said that she and about 100 other drivers had no idea what they were driving into, what they were getting themselves into. In fact, in the interview on the news, she said, why did Google send us out there to begin with? It just doesn't make any sense. There was no turning back once you were there. So they're out there, you know, just stranded. It became a, a muddy parking lot. Uh, fortunately for her, she had a more useful kind of high-tech in her car, an older kind of high-tech. She had all-wheel drive. So she not only got out of the muck, but she did a good deed, and she took some other low-tech drivers <laughs> to the airport. You know, Google Maps is great. I use it a lot. And I always say... GPS is great when you use it with common sense. You need to have some common sense. But I've been the victim of being sent to the wrong location or maybe to the right one, but through a roundabout way, and that's no fun. Well, today I want to talk to you about what you can use to determine not the route to get to the airport or to get somewhere else, but the uh, path that you can use to determine your path in life to determine the direction of your life. I want to talk to you today about setting your heart toward God's Word. Setting your heart toward God's Word. You know, every day, every day we direct our hearts in a certain direction as we start our day. As you start your day, you might direct your heart toward your family. You get up and you start doing things for your family, and that's good. As you start your day, you might direct your heart toward your health. 
you get up and you start exercising and, and you're careful what you eat, what you drink, and that's good. You might direct your heart toward your job, toward your goals, toward your dreams of the future, toward your financial goals, any number of things. Of course, we know that it's also possible toward, uh, to direct our heart toward things that are actually damaging to us. Either damaging, damaging to our bodies or damaging to our souls. I suspect that one of the first things that many people do when they first wake up is they, they pick up their cell phones and they start scrolling. They're definitely directing their hearts in a certain way when they do that as they start their day. But I want to ask the question, what if we were to direct our hearts toward God at the start of every day? What if we started the day by directing our hearts toward God, by setting our heart toward God and His Word? So this is what I want to talk to you about today. In fact, my big idea of what I want to uh, speak to you about today is this. We must, we can, and we must determine the direction of our lives by setting our hearts toward God and His Word. We must determine the direction of our lives by setting our hearts toward God and His Word. And so we're going to look to Ezra today in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, beginning with verse 8, going through verse 10. So if you'll follow in your Bibles, Ezra 7, beginning with verse 8, reads like this, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth Month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, or for Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Now look at verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules. In Israel. Now, would you, would you uh, read that verse 10 out loud with me? Everybody, you can read it from uh, your Bible. You can look up here. And uh, let's just read verse 10 out loud together. Here we go. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So let's look at uh, the example that Ezra leaves for us. In this area, we're actually introduced to Ezra at the beginning of chapter 7, the beginning of this chapter that we just read from. At the beginning of it, we read that Ezra came from a long line of priests that went all the way back to Aaron. If you know the, the background, you know the history, Aaron was the first high priest. So he came from that, from that line. We also read that Ezra was among was living among the, the uh, exiles in Babylon, those that had been uh, sent to or taken to Babylon as part of really the, the uh, discipline that God allowed because Israel had forsaken him and had followed other gods. So he allowed them to be taken into captivity. For 70 years they were in captivity in Babylon. And so Ezra was among those exiles. And we read that he was a scribe that was skilled a scribe that was skilled in the law of Moses. So he had, be, he had gained knowledge of the word of God. In fact, the rabbis considered Ezra to be second only to Moses. Now that's, you know, Moses was held in high esteem by, by the Jews, uh, and, and, and rightly so. And they considered Ezra to be second only to Moses because he was skilled 
in the scriptures, which in his day would have been the Pentateuch. So he was both called and equipped to be Israel's priest. So what we read in this story, and many of you already know this story, is that Ezra then, even though he was uh, among the exiles in Babylon, the, the king of Babylon gave him special uh, or the king of Persia gave him special permission to go back to the homeland, to go back to Jerusalem by the authority of the king of, king of Persia, a man by the name of Artaxerxes. Ezra was allowed to go back and to take some people with him. And not only was he allowed to go back and take some of the Jews back to their homeland, but the king also gave him uh, many supplies. He gave him uh, money, he gave him silver and gold. He gave him other equipment that he needed uh, to reestablish the worship, the sacrificial worship. When they were in Babylon, they couldn't worship the way that they were taught to worship in the scriptures. But as they went back to Jerusalem, then they were able to resume the covenantal worship of their God in the city of their God in Jerusalem. So it was a great deal. It was a great celebration as they were allowed to go back. In fact, Artaxerxes must have seen something in, uh, in Ezra. He must have recognized his special talents. He must have recognized his heart, his ability to lead. Because he not only allowed him to go back and send him back with silver and gold and other uh, treasures. So he could reestablish the temple worship. But he also gave him Great authority. He gave him broad authority to take the people back and to levy taxes, to appoint judges, to rule over the people, to lead them. And so what we read at the end of chapter 7 is that Ezra says this. He, he, he wrote, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra had the will to lead. He had the authority to lead. He had the will to do it. And so he was on his way. But we also learned that Ezra, just giving you some background here. We also learned that Ezra had a heart for holiness. We see it in the next chapters, uh, chapters uh, 9 and 10 especially, where Ezra had to confront this major sin in Israel. And the sin was this, that the men of Israel... Israel were intermarrying with the women of the pagan nations that surrounded them. These were women that worshipped uh, pagan gods, false gods. They were, these women worshipped gods that, for example, demanded child sacrifice. These were gods that, according to them, they, they demanded uh, prostitution as part of worship to them. And so the the men of Israel who were part of a, of a group that was set apart for God, it was holy, separated for God, God's chosen people, they were abandoning their values and they were following after women and marrying women who worshipped these false gods. It was a terrible, it was a tragic thing. And so then Ezra had to confront this. Now this, I think most of you know that it's not always easy to confront sin, to confront someone who is doing something wrong and to, and to have to rebuke them. Uh, you know, but we, we have to do this. Now, this issue really wasn't all that new. It had happened before and it happened later with Nehemiah. Ezra went to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. Later, Nehemiah also got permission to go from Babylon back to their homeland. Nehemiah was another leader. He came after Ezra. Nehemiah was a governor. Uh, and so 
Nehemiah faced the same situation. He also faced the men who were abandoning their beliefs in God and they were following and marrying these women from pagan nations. Now when Nehemiah, when, when he had to deal with this issue, when he faced this issue, uh, he did it in a very decisive manner. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah chapter 13, we read that Nehemiah says, says this. He said, I confronted them. And cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, isn't that an interesting way to apply church discipline? <laughs> what if we did this here at Solid Rock when some, one of you committed some kind of public sin? I wouldn't do it. I'd have to choose some men. Who volunteers? Any men here volunteer? Pastor, I'll, I'll go and beat the people and pull their hair. Now, can you believe that? That's what Nehemiah did. I'll tell you some more about that later. But that's what he did. That's the way... That's the way that he approached this, this sin. He went up and he called down curses on them, beat them, and pulled out their hair. Uh, now Ezra, let's, let's move back to Ezra. That happened after Ezra. But now Ezra, let's go back to the story of Ezra. When he saw this same sin, he took a very different approach. When he found out that God's people had been faithless in their matters of worship and in their marriage, and that they were, they were intermarrying with the women of these pagan nations, the Bible says that he tore his clothes, he pulled out his own hair, and he sat in mourning for an entire day. And then at the time of the evening sacrifice, that same day, he bowed before God and he prayed a prayer of confession in which he included himself in the sinners. He included himself with the men who had intermarried. And so we read in Ezra 9, 6 that he said, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Now he wasn't a part of this sin. He wasn't intermarrying. He wasn't abandoning God and his word. But he included himself in this sin. He asked for forgiveness. He, he made this public confession. And the effect of Ezra's public confession. Was dramatic. I mean it, it brought about a revival. Because the people followed uh, his, uh, his example. And they followed his uh, his example of making a confession, and they made their own confession. Uh, Ezra 10.1 says that while Ezra prayed, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered around him, and they began to weep bitterly. So they were cut to the heart because of his confession, even though he, he literally hadn't committed that sin. And so he confessed, he, he cried, he wept. And uh, I guess we could say that, uh, that his tears, his confession, did more to accomplish real spiritual change than when Nehemiah later came and, uh, and called down curses and beat them up and pulled their hair. Uh, so guys, the job is off. Sorry, that job is off. Ezra had a heart for holiness. And his heart became the heart of his people. Now, so he had a will to lead. He had a heart for holiness. Ezra also had a mind. And this is what I really want to get into. He had a mind for biblical truth. He had a mind for biblical truth. And perhaps the best example of this is a, a story that I love to read. I love this story where Ezra gathers the Israelites 
to renew their covenant with God there in Jerusalem. And so the heart of what they did, the heart of their renewal, was the reading and the preaching of God's word. In fact, the Bible says that Ezra gathered the people and he brought out the book of the law, book of the law of Moses, and he read it. Listen to this. He read it from morning until noon and then from noon until dusk. So from from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, he read the Bible, the, the book of the law. And he not only read it, but he also explained it. And the people stood that whole time. They stood the whole time that, that Ezra and other scribes were reading the book of the law to them. In fact, Nehemiah 8.8 says that he and the other teachers read from the book of the law of God, making it clear. I love that. Making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. I love that because this is really, uh, in, in, in the scriptures, our first model for expository preaching, you know, where you just explain the scriptures. This is what I think faithful teaching and preaching should be about. Reading God's word and giving the sense or giving the meaning of what is being read so that the people can understand it and then be able to put it into practice. So Ezra was this great man. I think one of the all-time heroes of the faith, he had the will to lead, he had a heart for holiness, and he had a mind for biblical truth. So if we want to follow his example, I present him to you today as an example for all of us. And if we want to follow his example, we should ask, what is it that made him so great at what he did? What was the reason for his spiritual success? Well, in one sense, we know, and the Bible and the story of Ezra tells us this. The Bible makes it clear that it was a grace of God. It was a hand of God, or as we read, the good hand of God, who works things out for our good. And so it was, it was an act of, uh, of God. But I believe there's also another side to all this. Because although Ezra had the hand of God on him, he also had to be faithful to his calling. He had to be faithful to his calling. And he, and he was. He had a longing for God. And he had a longing for God's word. The Bible shows us what was inside of him. Gives us this intimate glimpse into his approach to life and ministry. In verse 10 that we all read out loud together a while ago. We read that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And to do it and to teach the statutes and rules in Israel. Now, the logic of this is very clear. I mean, these were three things that Ezra was committed to doing. And he had them in the right order here. The order is important. He had them in the right order um, because that's what made sense. That's what makes sense. He had his heart set. He was devoted to studying and to doing or living and to teaching the word of God. That was his heart's commitment. That was the direction of his life. That was the settled intention of his soul. And so we learn from that today. Let's just go over these three things uh, briefly this morning. What he teaches us with his example is that we must set our heart toward God's word by studying. Set your heart toward God's word by studying it. Start with studying God's word. 
Before we know what God wants us to do, before we can teach someone else what God wants us to do, we need to know ourselves what God wants us to do. And that means studying God's word. Ezra had committed himself to studying God's word. We don't know his study habits. We don't know how exactly how he did that, but we know that he was skilled in the law of Moses. We know that the delight, his delight was in the law of the Lord, and he meditated on it, I'm sure, as a psalmist wrote. In Psalm 1, he meditated on it day and night. And since, uh, I said to you, he was raised in a family of priests. He had studied the scriptures from his, uh, his childhood. No doubt he, he had um, spent hours uh, upon hours reading, pondering, reflecting. Not just reading and checking off, but reading, pondering, reflecting, discussing God's word, uh, God's word with others. Now, in those days, somebody of uh, a scribe like Ezra, for example, would have committed large portions of Scripture to memory because they wanted to know God's Word. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is great, but Ezra was a priest. He was trained to study God's Word. Well, that's true. But I, I think if you wanted to use that as an excuse for why you can't do that, I think you're missing the point because the Bible tells us, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, nine that we're all priests. We're all priests. We're a royal priesthood. We don't have to be trained academically to study the Bible. We can just begin by reading it. By reading it. Uh, we start by filling our hearts and our minds with the Word of God daily. And as you read the Bible daily, you'll find, you'll find yourself studying eventually if you allow time to read it, because something you'll read will trigger a thought that you can follow, follow along, or something you'll read will remind you, hey, there's something else about the same uh, topic, and I think I read it over here, especially if you've written down some things for yourself, you can find, or you, know, you can use, use such good uh, Bible helps now online, you can find a scripture that talks about the same topic, and you, you, you eventually will find yourself, if you're serious about this, just doing a little study on a certain verse or a certain topic. Now, I will tell you that this doesn't happen with only superficial reading of the Bible, which is a kind of reading that many times Christians do, just a superficial reading. I, I, I love the YouVersion Bible app. We use it here a lot. I enjoy following the reading plans. I've done reading plans from time to time there. But I have to tell you that I see the reading plans on, on most of them, not all of them. Maybe I should just say many of the reading plans on, on the Bible app, version Bible app. I see them as sort of training wheels for our devotional time. And the reason I say this is because they're good and somebody has written some devotional thoughts for us. And, and, and the ones I've read have been excellent. But when I've done a, a, a reading plan like that, do you know that I can often do a daily Bible plan reading in less than 60 seconds. I'm not exaggerating. In less than a minute, I can, I can read the devotional content, read the two, three verses that it includes, and I'm done. And uh, I mean, this is better than nothing, but this is not really the kind of deep reading that will allow us to really grow and to, and to find the direction for our lives from God. I mean, I think it's great. I think, like I said, I think it's like training wheels. It can get, get us started. I think it's good. And if you do that, continue to do that. But I think we need to learn to do regular deep reading, deep reading of God's word. 
Now, some of you might say, again, I'm getting, you know, I, I can I can read your minds this morning. Some of you might say, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time for that kind of reading. Well, if, for those of you who say that, my answer to you is that I, I think you do have the time. I think you have the time to carve out 15 minutes per day to read God's Word. Now, let me ask you, does 15 minutes sound extreme? Like, are you, 15 minutes, there's no way I could do that. I don't have 15. I think we have 15 minutes. If you, if you just think about some of the time that you spend doing things that are maybe don't have any significant value to us, I think we can carve out 15 minutes, even 10 minutes, just for some reading of God's Word as a, as a start. It's not extreme. If I were to tell you today, you better read the Bible an hour and a half every single day or God is not pleased with you, then that's extreme and that's wrong and that's legalism. But I think, I think 15 minutes a day is not extreme and we can do that. So study God's Word. And as I'm you know, talking about studying God's Word begins with just reading God's Word. So set it up. Maybe put it on your phone, on the calendar, set a reminder, an alarm, whatever you have to do. But guard your Bible reading schedule. Again, do more than simply checking off a daily Bible reading plan. Devote time to reading and studying. There are no shortcuts here. There are no shortcuts. Do the deep work of reading the Bible. Let's not offer any more excuses. So set your heart toward uh, God's word by studying it. And secondly, Ezra would teach us to, to set our hearts toward God's word by living it. By living it. Uh, because Ezra wanted to do more than simply learn the Bible. He wanted to live it. And so he set his heart to do what he was reading. This meant that, you know, loving, for example, loving the Lord his God. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Ezra certainly wanted to love God in that manner. And so it meant for Ezra, you know, maybe it meant keeping the Ten Commandments. And it meant following the regulations for himself as a priest, for holiness, public worship. You know, he, he had to find a way of how do I do what I'm reading? How do I practice and so I believe that Ezra read the scriptures with an eye toward application. With an eye toward application. Now I think giving context is important. I think it's huge. It always bothers me when I hear someone teaching or preaching and, and they just go right to the application. And sometimes the application has nothing to do with really what the, what the scripture is saying. They find application that it, it sounds good. Uh, I hear a lot of, uh, a lot of allegory uh, preaching, which I used to do a lot of. Now, the Bible has allegory, uses allegories to teach and preach. But a lot of times I hear some allegory preaching because really we're not looking at the background. I used to do this. I remember a sermon I preached many years ago, many years ago. And it was a sermon about Paul when he was a prisoner, was on a ship, and they came upon, they came upon this, this storm. And, uh, and the, Luke tells in his account that it was a pretty severe storm. So they put out an anchor, uh, then another anchor. They ended up putting, out, putting down four anchors, four anchors to kind of secure the boat. And so my sermon that day was those four anchors, and I don't remember exactly. Those four anchors are the anchor of, of joy or the anchor of hope. Maybe I said it's the anchor of prayer. 
well, that's not really what that was about. I mean, that's, that's what you call allegory preaching and teaching. So I preached about joy, and there was nothing about joy there. I was just allegorizing it because I didn't know any better. It was a long time ago. I make different mistakes now. I don't, I don't make that same one. But I'm just saying, look, background is important. And if we go right to application like I was doing that time, then we misapply the scripture. And it sounds great and it's helpful. I mean, who doesn't want to hear about hope, joy, prayer, peace, whatever it was I said. It sounds great, but we're not really getting the, the background that allows us to apply it correctly. So I think background is huge. It gives us the right context to understand what we're reading. But we don't want to stop at the background. We, we want to ultimately uh, allow God to help us apply that so that we can live God's word. We don't just want to gain information. See, some people love the background, the context, and that's where they stop. We don't want to just gain information, but we want transformation, and that happens through application of God's word. And so Ezra understood this. He understood that the only true theology is applied theology. And... Um, James said this in James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Be a doer of the word. So I think we need to find ways when we study the scriptures, when we read, find ways, you know, do the deep work of, of background and investigating. But then what, what does this say to me today? What does it tell me? that? How can I put this into practice today, tomorrow? Don't just listen to the Word. Don't just read the Word. Don't just study the Word. Because James says, when you do that, you're deceiving yourselves. But practice the Word. Live God's Word. So set your heart toward God's Word by living it. And then finally, he would say, Ezra would say, set your heart toward God's Word by teaching it. By teaching it. This is the third step. Teaching God's statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra didn't begin as a teacher. He became a teacher. And we can become teachers too. Now, not, maybe not necessarily uh, uh, you know, on, on the platform, on the stage, uh, leading an assembly or teaching to a group. Although many, many of us can do that. You know, some people are called to a teaching ministry. But this is not what this verse is necessarily about, even though this is what Ezra was doing. This is about what each of us who love God's word enough to study it and to live it can also teach it. Like Ezra, we're all called to be students of God's word. We're all called, every one of us, as a royal priesthood. are called to study, to, to study God's word, to live it, and to teach it to others. So that means that we've got to spend time reading the Bible, not not so much in an academic way, but in a devotional way. In a devotional way, nurturing our relationship with, with Jesus. It means meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, hiding it in our heart, devoting the best of our energy, the best of our days to learning what God has said in, in His Word. And it, and it means paying special attention to those areas in which God is calling us to obedience so we can live it. And once we start living it, then we, I think that's when, when God can trust us to teach it to others. Once he sees that we're studying, we're reading and studying, we're, we're doing our best to live it, just to obey God, just to live it, then God says, now I want you to teach it. I want you to teach it. Paul said to Timothy, the, the things you've learned from me, 
pass it on to others so they can also teach it to others. See how important that procession or that progression rather is. Uh, and so we want to start living the truth and then teaching the truth. And I think this is a goal of our of our study time to teach others. I, I don't think it's just for ourselves. I think what you're learning every time you you hear a message, you hear a teaching, you learn something on your own through your devotional time. I think that knowledge you're gaining is a sacred trust that God has given you, not so you can hoard it. Say, oh man, this is great what I just learned. I think it's a, a sacred trust that God has given you so you can give it to others, so you can pass it on to others. So set your heart to study the Word of God and to do it and to teach it to others. Now, let, let me finish with this. I, I really feel like teaching it to others has to start with passing it on to our children. Teaching it to our children. This is important because they're the ones, our children are the ones who are most prone to struggle in life, to struggle with the areas that you've struggled in life yourself. I mean, you know, we all know the importance of having medical history, how important our medical history is important to our health. I think so is the spiritual history of attacks against our hearts. I'm not talking about generational curses here, but I'm talking about the inclination of our hearts. You might have a certain inclination that maybe one of your children also has. So if we want our children to guard their hearts, we must teach them how to do that. Now let me take you back to the story of Nehemiah. His angry words, calling down curses, beating up the men and pulling out their hair. Let me tell you why he did that. Let's go to Nehemiah 13, beginning with verse 23. Nehemiah 13, 23 reads like this. This is Nehemiah speaking. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These are the pagan women. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I conf- this, is now, this is what we read earlier. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now we see why Nehemiah was so angry. Because what these men were doing, was their sin was being passed on to their children. If you don't teach your children about God, if you don't pass on the things you're learning, the experiences you've had, you're having with God, where you're being challenged and and you're growing and and God is dealing with you and and God is teaching you and maybe even God is disciplining you, but it's part of your growth. If you don't share that with your children and teach them, teach them also to read and to study and to live and to teach to others, then we're going to grow a generation of children who don't know the language of God. Like these, these children, and we read it in verse 24, they spoke the language of the pagan gods. Half of them spoke the language of the pagan gods, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah. This is what will happen to our children, where they will speak the language of the culture, but their, their hearts will be called toward God, and they won't speak the language of God. Your kids will become and are becoming saturated by the culture, by the music of the culture, by the ways of the culture. And if we don't do a concerted 
and, and a deliberate effort to teach them God's word, they will no longer speak the language of God. They'll speak the language of the culture. This is why Nehemiah was so angry. Okay, gods, maybe this job is back on again. Beating up and, and pulling out hair. Not really. You know, that's, that's not our approach now. But I think the seriousness of what happens when we don't follow this example of Ezra. The seriousness of what happens is uh, given, a, given an evidence here in the book of Nehemiah. Now look, you can make yourself an expert in any area. If you've heard this 10,000 hour rule that says if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, practicing reading a certain area and, and practicing that, you can make yourself an expert. And you can make yourself an expert in passing God's word along to your children and to others if you just spend time doing it. Set your heart toward God and His Word. Determine the direction of your heart or the direction of your life by setting your heart toward God and His Word. And in doing so, you'll help determine the direction of your children's lives as well. This is what we're called to do. And you can start doing this today. Tomorrow. Determine you're going to carve out the 15 minutes. It's not extreme. You're going to carve out the 15 minutes to just begin by reading. When I read God's Word, sometimes I'll read something that, that really strikes me. It resonates with me and it'll trigger a thought and I'll write, I'll write down the thought. And, uh, and sometimes I'll read and I don't write anything down. But uh, I'm ready in case I feel that God is wanting to say something to me. If we can just start doing that, then I think that'll start this process that will allow us to become men and women who know how to follow God because we know how to follow His Word.